Yes, it's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And we would have got away with it if it wasn't for those pesky geeks. Hello and welcome. I'm The Incredible Melting Man. And I'm just chilling over here. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And boy, as we record this, it's hot. Andy, it's so hot today that I had every intention of going outside and mowing the lawn. Now, we've not got a massive garden, but we've got a pretty big garden here at Ford Towers. And it usually takes me about an hour to mow. We've got sort of a multi-level lawn. It takes me about an hour to do it. It's taken me four hours today, <laughs> and I've done half. <laughs> and I, that was me stopping every 10 minutes to go inside and basically wring myself out and then go back into it because it is that warm. Well, I decided to, you know, because as we've mentioned before, I've lost significant weight in the past few months. And you look well for it, sir. For an example of how much weight I've lost, I've now dug down my wardrobe and found three pairs of jeans that were brand new that never fitted me that I can fit into, Fantastic. as well as two pairs of jogging trousers. Yes, I have jogging trousers. I don't jog, but I have them. <laughs> uh, and they all fit me now, so I could, I've, I've lost a few sizes. Uh, but today, thought, like, you know what? want to want to get healthy, want to keep this like, weight off. So I went for a walk, and I cut the walk short because I got... I, I went to the shop first, got some Lucozade, and I drunk all the Lucozade within 15 minutes of the walk. <laughs> I was that dehydrated as I'm walking on. The heat is just oppressive out there. So yeah. I, I did a shot. I mean, it was still a decent walk, but it wasn't half of what I wanted to actually try to get out. I, I'm not good with the heat as it is. And I'm sure I've got ginger somewhere in my jeans somewhere. I was telling you last week that uh, we went on holiday and I kind of think I found my retirement plan. I, I like living in the sun, but there's a huge difference between sort of when it hits you at home and when you're in a, a, another country, I think there's there's an expectancy to be hot, so you you dress and 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 live your lifestyle very differently. But doing sort of manual chores on a day like today wasn't, you know, houses in 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 foreign climes are designed to be kind of effective mm. in in sort of high temperatures. But here here we're not. I usually record in my little studio upstairs. I, I was frying an egg on the desk just before we started, and I thought no. I'm going to do this downstairs, so the sound will probably be a little bit different this week. But yeah, I just, I just, I did like ten minutes. I'd mow a bit, come in, have a cold drink, mow a bit more. Four hours, <laughs> four <laughs> hours, I tell you. Aside from my brief attempt at a walk, while I've been back in Sheffield, I've done nothing except for just watch things. I've caught up on so many shows. I finally watched the season finale of Severance. Okay. And man, I Great ending, season, isn't it? I need need season two in my veins right now. This is one of the reason why I've spent took my time watching this and I've not watched any episodes while I'm away is it's one of those shows that both me and the wife have watched together. And while she doesn't quite get most of it, she's loving how it's all playing out. And it got to that end of that ep the final episode. And I was like, we've got to wait for season two. And she went, what? Not yep. leaving it there. And I was like, yeah. And what a cliffhanger. Man. Exactly the same in our household. Exactly the same. Oh, that that's a show that everyone yeah. needs to check out. While I'm talking about things that people need to check out. Now, as you know, I've taken a break on the movie talk on Sunday, hashtag MTOS, over the past couple of months while I've been backwards and forwards because I can't really dedicate the time to, you know, sit and work out the questions and then I'm, I'm with you. on Sunday night. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, Salty Red Popcorn over on Twitter took up the mantle and just on a whim started doing some MTOS topics and he's been tweeting them out from his own account. 
and he's on the third week of it now. And it's so great to see someone else just picking it up and going with it. Because MTOS isn't just something for, from me. MTOS is something that I took up because other people stopped doing it. It's great to see that, you know, it is part of like the film community. Anyone can get involved with sharing 10 questions on a Sunday evening. So I've uh, scheduled my answers for this evening just in case I can't be focused. But I'm loving the fact that he's uh, he's given it another shot. And we're starting to get the group back together. It's great to see the answers coming in and me having nothing to do with it. Yes, I did notice it was back, Andy. I did. I think I contributed a, uh, an answer. Uh, for me, my highlight has been um, being able to see again. So I uh, only this happened really, really quickly. I had uh, um, uh, an issue with with both my eyes and uh, one in particular. And I had an operation about six weeks ago, and uh, that gave me my eyesight. Basically, I'm, I'm, I've gone from being long-sighted to, sorry, I've been gone from being short-sighted to long-sighted to having one eye in short-sighted and one eye in long-sighted. As you can imagine, it's, it was like living in a, a, a world of mysterio. Everything wasn't quite right. Uh, and enjoying movies as, as not being high up there and, and uh, not being able to watch TV. Uh, not been able to watch movies properly. It's been a bit, been a bit miserable. Um, and, it, and one of my great loves is, is, is being able to watch movies. And the last time I really noticed it was bad, I went to see Thor: Love, Love and Thunder, and I struggled watching it. And, and I struggled watching Prey last week. Anyway, got my other eye done. I was supposed to spend a week recovering, but I went to the cinema on Friday, and it was so good just to be able to to view things properly again. I bought a new telly at Christmas. Spent. You know, good portion of uh, uh, of cash on it. Thought it was crap. <laughs> I thought I'd made a really big mistake, and now I can see properly again. It's like, oh, right. This is what I paid for. This is what yes. I paid for. <laughs> um, so yes, I might have to. Uh, I have to sit down and watch Prey again, just to, uh, uh, to just to get my uh, uh, full enjoyment out of it again. Nice. Um, I was thinking about holding this off for the news, but it's not really particularly news. But it's just like a, a reaffirmation of something that we said a couple of weeks ago okay uh, you know how we said that like maybe less will be more with marvel going forward that maybe they should rein it back in i well, think i'm going with this damon lindelof also appears to be of the same opinion he's basically said that you know from a cynical standpoint it's a business it's an industry uh, if you make a couple of great marvel movies the instinct is we need to make more we need to make more and he has this feeling of wow i wish they made less because it'd make each one that came out a little bit more special which is basically it, i'm wondering whether he listens to this podcast because yeah. he's basically echoing what we said a few weeks ago that the big event movies from marvel don't feel special anymore because there's yeah. too many of them but then he did go on to say like you know he, he's a bit of a hypocrite really because uh, he can't really go saying that and then tell them to come up with an original idea meanwhile he's making two star trek movies and prometheus you know <laughs> so he realized the hypocrisy in him saying like you need to be more original when he's just churning out sequels and tie-ins to other things but it's a valid point and you know i don't want marvel to not i don't want marvel to special. feel like it's not special anymore yeah. and that it's just like plodding along i know that in the comics they've been going constantly every month anyway uh, three times a month in the case of Amazing Spider-Man these days. But the movies need to be a huge impact on the screen. They need to not just be the something something that people are going to see just on a whim. And I think that's one of the reasons why they see a huge drop-off after the opening weekend now, because people are starting to get tired of them. Like Spielberg hinted a couple of years ago when he says, Westerns went down this route, superhero films will go the same way. Yeah, we said that. We said that on this show. I, I'm a big fan of Damon Lindelof. It gets a lot of... Uh, a lot of slating in the uh, genre community, you know, 
it always annoys me when so oh these guys can't write yes he can write you, yeah you've got to remember what kind of an industry this is this is an industry of uh not a writer's industry this is a producer's industry and you know you can't do everything you write can't land especially if you're writing episodic tv yeah. but i'm was a big fan of, of watchmen i thought for the majority of lost was was great. I think that was a case of, of perhaps too much. They should have ended it earlier. It was because of network TV where they take the story and they go, right, quick, we need to expand this out for more episodes yeah. as much as you can. So there's a lot of padding that I loved Lost from start to finish, but there's easily half of the episodes that you could just throw to one side and just keep uh-huh. the core storyline and it'll be a lot better. Lindelof is not a bad writer. No, not really. I'm a big fan. He's uh, he's one of those that I study when I'm when I'm writing. He's one of my my go to uh, writers. Not everything lands, but for everything that doesn't land, he's had at least two hits, as far as I'm concerned. We'll make sure that when we we put this out, that we hashtag Damon Lindelof in in this, and hopefully we hopefully we'll get a response from him. <laughs> if Who you knows? do listen to the show, Damon, so um, hi, <laughs> big fans. <laughs> <laughs> A bit of a sound tech issues there. So you might notice a slight difference in Lee's voice going forwards. Trust me, it's <laughs> coming through on a different microphone for the rest of the show. Oh, you know, this is what you get when you are. We're not the big guys. You know, we are the small guys and we, uh, we've not got some huge uh, corporate entity behind us who produces this show. In fact, we've, oh, the only thing behind us is uh, um, is what you actually see. <laughs> this is it. Just <laughs> It's just us two putting this together anyway. So... If it does sound a little bit different, that's that's the joy of this podcast. We are very seat your pants, rock and roll. Yeah. That's the way we roll. roll. <laughs> that's how we roll. So what's coming up in today's show? Well, we are going to be doing a deep dive into Event Horizon because Andy got his 4K UHD edition and loved every second of it. <laughs> He's been so happy to talk about this for so long. I don't buy much physical media these days. And this is the very first 4K film that I've bought. So pride of place, my first 4K. <laughs> so yes, we'll be talking about Event Horizon in this week's Deep Dive. We will be reviewing Jordan Peele's latest film, Nope. Is it going to get a yeah or is it going to get a nope from us? Also, Andy's going to be talking about... A couple of films that you can find on streaming, both of them on Netflix. First of all, RRR. And secondly, landed this past weekend, Day Shift. Our usual stuff and nonsense, our neat things. But of course, before any of that, we've got the segment that we've always called news because it is the news. So as ever, starting off the news, let's talk about this week's box office. Andy, so in the UK, will Nope be flying high? Is Bullet Train still Rolling into the station. <laughs> or has A24's bodies, 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 which landed in the US, managed to uh, leave bodies, bodies, bodies all over the tracks? Oh, very well. Very well done there. <laughs> so what's this week's box office? So there's not a huge amount of changes from last week's US box office. No, bodies, bodies, bodies hasn't left any devastation on the tracks. Bullet Train remains in first place in the US, taking another $13.4 million this weekend. DC League of Super Pets manages another 7.2 million onto its total. Top Gun Maverick still flying high in third place with 7.2 million. Thor Love and Thunder 5.3 million this weekend and Nope holding in in the fifth place with 5.3 million. Here in the UK, Nope went straight in at number 1 with 1.9 million. Bullet Train knocked down into second place 906,000 this weekend. 
DC League of Super Pets, 830,000, taking third place. Minions, The Rise of Gru, 754,000 this weekend. And Thor, Love and Thunder, holding into fifth place with 535,000. Bullet Train so far worldwide has taken 114 million on a budget of about 90 million. League of Super Pets has passed 109 million on a budget of 90 million. And Nope, with its moderate budget of 68 million, is now up to 113 million worldwide. I can't see there being huge changes in the upcoming box offices because the products which are on their way are not really what we call heavy hitters for the next couple of months. So we're in this particular weird sort of dead zone right now. So I guess it's anybody's guess what's going to knock it out of the park until we get Black Adam. Which is all the way in October. Wow. I've never, I can't remember a time when there has been this much of a dirge. Yeah, I mean, it always drops off in September, but usually there's one or two films like just scattered in between these weeks. But it really is a wilderness out there for the next few weeks. The hope is that the smaller films will manage to grab an audience. Let's see. So on with the news, Andy, what have you got for us? Uh, let's start off with the ever-continuing saga of Warner Brothers and DC. Now, I've done a bit of reading over the last week. I'm guessing some of the things you're going to be talking about is stuff I've read about. I'm assuming you're going to mention Ezra Miller. Yes. Just as a recap, over the recent weeks, there's been the cancellation of Batgirl and the Scoob sequel. Not DC, but, you know, it's uh, another Warner Bros. one that just got cancelled. Reshoots around Aquaman have, have been high in the news, as well as the reshuffling of the DC slate. Well, this week, Ezra Miller was charged with felony burglary for allegedly stealing alcohol from an unoccupied dwelling in Vermont in May. The actor was ultimately located late last Sunday and was issued a summons for a hearing which will take place on September the 26th. Now, interestingly, for the past few months has been this Ezra Miller's been in hiding, but, but this week it was revealed that they were involved in reshoots for The Flash in recent months, which okay. all seems a little strange given that they were allegedly hiding from police for the last few months. Something doesn't add up fully with these stories. And whilst many people out there have already jumped on the idea that Miller is guilty of all the allegations, I still think we need to hold off until the various matters are fully investigated. It's, it's one of those very bizarre continuing stories alongside the other bizarre continuing stories of what's going to happen to The Flash. I've seen lists and lists of what pundits have, uh, have suggested could happen with The Flash, the recasting that we talked about. Um, this is one of those stories that, that doesn't seem to be going away. Now, if we go down the Batgirl route and Warners ultimately, or the new Warners regime ultimately decide that they don't want The Flash, that's a lot of money yes. to, to throw away. And I don't think it's possible to do that because they, they've done Batgirl and Scoob over over tax reasons and can do it as a tax write-off. That's a big tax write-off for the Flash yeah. uh, and the goodwill that goes with it as well. But as you said, Andy, it's a, it's a it's definitely a case of just keep this thread alive and what's going on. There's so many opposing stories out there. There's the allegation that they had groomed someone who the person who they've groomed has said that all the stories that have come out with that have been nonsense. There's the allegations that they abducted a mother and her child however the mother and the child have stated that they've they were taken away from a, an abusive household it's all multiple stories and where does this leave everything well miller is definitely seriously troubled and yeah. if found guilty on these actions yes indeed they should be held accountable but we shouldn't prejudge we shouldn't as outsiders say whether they are guilty or not 
we need to await for the investigations and the court's decisions before we'll get anywhere close to the truth. Where does this all leave a Flash movie? Zaslav has stated that the studio is still committed to a cinema release, although a leaked report that you've already hinted at says that there's discussions going on right now which give the studio three options. One, Miller publicly addresses the various allegations, seeks professional help, and will then be involved in a limited capacity for the marketing and press for the film. Or two, Miller has no involvement in press and publicity, but the film still releases. Or three, the film is cancelled completely if Miller continues on a self-destructive path. Now, whilst we in the film geek community are all over this news and we know the ins and outs and the speculations that's going on, and, you know, we might be put off watching a film with a problematic name attached to it, it is worth noting that the majority of the general public don't actually care. Names on posters don't mean anything to people. And anyone who has ever seen any game shows such as Pointless in the UK will know how the majority of contestants react to a film-related question, basically by going, oh, give me sports instead. Um, Pointless in particular is is a great example because rarely any film-related rounds get a score higher than 20. Even if the round is on films of Steven Spielberg, the Pointless answers sometimes are names like Jaws and Saving Private Ryan because the general public don't care. They just see a trailer for something that they go, that looks fun, and they'll go and see it. Yeah, I mean, it's usually the press that's, that's built around that. You look at Army Hammer recently. Yeah. While Death on the Nile didn't do much in the way of business, I don't think people did not go to see it because Army Hammer was in it. No, I think that if the Flash releases on the big screen, depending on how those trailers all work, I think it'll still do business. I think it'll still make money. I don't think people are going to boycott it in the huge waves. I mean, let's throw our mind back to when Daniel Craig was cast as Bond. And there was a huge campaign, huge campaign, Bond Not Blonde, which had a huge traction online. And it also had some of the press as well. The Daily Mirror were heavily behind this um, getting kicked off it and like bring back proper Bond. And that film, Casino Royale, yeah, it bombed, didn't it? Because everyone boycotted it. Oh, no, it was a huge success. (laughs) And then on the flip side, remember Snakes on a Plane? Yeah. Remember the huge internet campaign to make it a huge big film and it bombed? The general public don't know anything that's going on and the films will still do what the films will do. Anyway, back to Batgirl. In the wake of the film being cancelled, it's been reported that Warner Brothers chiefs Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi are considering using the character in future DC productions, hoping to mend fences with the star Leslie Grace. Personally, I hope that she tells them to stick it. Yeah. For the way that the whole cast and crew have been treated with regards to this film, I think they should just go no and walk away. Rumours have that one star, who's now getting fed up of uh, the toing and froing and uncertainty, has already um, told them, ah, I'm done now. And that is Henry Cavill. Yes, apparently he's not coming back. Uh, He's been approached to play Superman again, and he's less than interested in going back to that party. I mean, he's had years of them going, "Eh, well, we might continue, we might continue. Why should he hang around? He can get offers for anything. I know that there's some speculation out there that he's been approached for Bond, but as we reported only a few weeks ago, they're not even considering moving ahead with any Bond films until late next year. So just take any of those reports with a huge, not just a pinch of salt, go to the salt mines and carve it all out and throw that on top of that bit of news. It's also been revealed this week that there's only one greenlit film in the DC upcoming slate, and that is the Joker sequel, um, which will have a budget of 150 million. So the Batman sequel is in development, as in 
early scripting stages and not greenlit for production at this point in time. Wonder Woman 3, Zatanna, uh, the Taneshi Coates Superman film, and all the J.J. Abrams projects are all in limbo. The only greenlit film that is going to go in front of a camera is the Joker sequel. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a big change from what we expected of the DC output. I mean, Black Adam, Shazam and Aquaman now are the only things that are ready to roll and we're, we're going to see, well, even Aquaman has been pushed back. There is still a rumour based around with Sandman coming out that the John Constantine was off limits for that because he's going to be used in J.J. Abraham's proposed Dark Justice uh, for HBO Max. But it, this has moved very, very quickly from having a whole run of new DC properties to practically nothing. nothing's happening and nothing's out there. According to Zaslav, they're waiting until they get the Feige-esque guru in place before they start properly laying down plans for where the DC franchise is going to go. Rumours have it that Greg Belanti, who was basically involved in all the CW shows and developing them and creating that shared universe, had been approached. But apparently he said he doesn't want that job. He's got other things that he's got wants to focus on. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And again, I don't blame him because it's it a looks poison like challenge, can... Andy. Yeah, I mean, you and a... I could take it on. <laughs> we probably do a better job than a certain Zack Snyder. Oh, oh, all the Snyder bots out there get very upset. Yes, anyone can do a better job than Zack Snyder when it comes to DC because he clearly doesn't understand the characters. I know that you think he does, but you've only read three issues from the New Fifty Two era, and that's what you based all your judgment on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, who's going to take this guru role? Because, like you say, it's a poison chalice. No one will want it because as soon as they get one flop, well, as history has shown, DC then kick you out and want to get rid of you and scrap everything. Um, Amusingly, the Scoob film that was cancelled had its movie score recorded this week. Why? Well, they'd already booked the soundstage and the musicians, so producer Tony Savone simply decided, let's record it anyway, which he's revealed via an Instagram post. So I love the fact that there's a film there now that will never get released that does have a completed movie score. And I'm hoping that we at least get that movie score released on CD and I will buy it just to spite Warner Brothers. It's a shame, really. I mean, there's a lot of people who put time and effort and a lot of their work, their paid jobs to create something that's not going to be seen. Now, and I'm going over what we talked about from one of my insiders who said they have, uh, and I trust that they have word on Batgirl, is that it wasn't, it's not bad. This is not a bad movie. Uh, and especially when you, you you compare it to stuff like Mobius. Is it any worse or any better than, than Mobius? Is it any worse than X-Men Dark Phoenix, which all got releases? I, I think it's a, it's a crying shame. It should, uh, if it's a film is finished, it's in the can, it should be up to us, the general public, to, to make that uh, make that judgment at this stage. And same, same with Scoop, uh, yep. part two. You enjoyed part one. Yeah. Is it that terrible that it is unreleasable? And, I, and you and I, between us, have seen some pretty awful films. I mean, I watched um, one of them this week. But, and yeah. you watched one of them this week. <laughs> and, you know, they, they their IP alone would have given them somewhat of an audience. And again, I refer to uh, Mobius and refer to Venom. Anyway, moving on. Just a little bit of news. You mentioned Henry Cavill. Yeah. So uh, this week, um, we know that Henry Cavill has been tied into uh, we mentioned it here on the show last year that Henry Cavill was uh, in line to join the Highlander reboot and as of yet nothing's happened or has it well according to um, John Wick co-director Chas Delasky who is uh, directing the movie announced that 
things were moving along. They got the story down to where they want it. They got the script in shape and they were happy with the direction that the movie is taking and look forward to commencing some kind of production on it. So it doesn't look like it's dead. It doesn't seem to be that it's going to kickstart uh, production this year but it doesn't look yet like it's gone away. So there is still some good news to uh, Henry Cavill as Duncan MacLeod in the Highlander reboot stroke remake. See, I'm, I'm well in for that. You know my love of um, Highlander. Maybe not so much all the sequels, but, you know, I've stuck around with the franchise and I think it's it's definitely a franchise that something interesting could be done with in the right hands. And uh, Stelsky is... Uh, the right hands, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie. Man, we love them. Go we together like ham and we, eggs. We love Cruise and McQuarrie, and we love what they've been doing with Mission Impossible. And they're still filming Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, but they're already planning another action film with franchise potential. And this isn't their space going off into space and shooting Tom Cruise in a rocket. The duo have added at least one or two more projects to their list of team-ups that they could get work on post-MI8. One is reportedly an original song and dance style musical crafted specifically as a star vehicle for Cruise. Okay. Has Cruise been in a, a, a song and dance film, except for Rock of Ages? Rock of Ages. Um, he did sing in um, Paul Anderson's Magnolia. Yes, he did. Be interesting to see what a song and dance style musical for Macquarie could look like. I'm up for that. And the other one is apparently the return of his Tropic Thunder Dance Happy Studio executive, Les Grossman. Which has been on the cards for many, many years. Now, it's not clear if it's going to be a film centred around Grossman or if the character is going to be incorporated into another one or two projects. But, you know, whatever's going to happen, all of these projects will be written by Macquarie in collaboration with Cruz. And that's made me more than happy. I would love to see Les Grossman as a support character in other films. He <laughs> was a standout star. Tropic Thunder, I've got a lot of love for. And it was only when the end credits were rolling that I realised that was Tom Cruise under there. Now I can't not see it. Yeah. You can see it straight away once you know. But it was such a nice surprise to not realise that that was Tom Cruise until you got to the end credits. Doesn't happen often with films. I'm all for more Les Grossman. I thought that he was a marvellous creation. Christopher McQuarrie is one of the go-to script doctors in Hollywood right now. His sense of storytelling is always absolutely spot on. I remember him doing an interview on another podcast. Yes, we do listen to other podcasts. We're not <laughs> cheating. And in the interview, he, he was talking about a particular film. If only they'd listened to him and the director had, uh, had, had taken note of, of the comments he was making, they would have saved the film. Even though he didn't say what that movie was, it was pretty clear he was talking about The Mummy. Stephen King news. Oh, always up for some Stephen King news. The Regulators is going to be adapted with George Cohen working on a script which King himself has reportedly approved. I don't know The Regulators. The Regulators was one of the ones that he released under his pseudonym Richard Bachman. Um, in 1996, okay. alongside alongside the Mirror novel, um, Desperation. Uh, the story in the, the Regulators is set in Wentworth, Ohio, where the peace of an everyday suburban street is shattered when four vans containing shotgun-wielding regulators terrorise the street's residents, killing anyone foolish enough to venture outdoors. Houses start to transform into log cabins, and the street ends in what looks like a child's hand-drawn western landscape. Masterminding all of this is an evil creature who's taken over the body of an autistic boy whose parents were killed in a drive-by shooting months, months earlier. Um, the novel itself started as a film script. King was scoring notes on it from filmmaker Sam Peckinpah shortly before he died. It's mostly known as the companion work to Desperation. Both contain the same characters, albeit in very different circumstances. And King wrote it 
as we said, under the pseudonym Richard Backman. It's not one that I've read. No, no, I don't I've know. Read it at Desperation, all. but never read Regulators, and I don't know why. Because I do know that I bought my mum both books when they came out. I just never right. got round to reading Regulators. It'll be an intro. I don't know whether to start reading it now or whether to wait until the film gets made, watch the film, and then go back and see how good an adaptation it was. But always interested to see anything Stephen King made to, onto the big screen or even the small screen, even though. At least half of them are terrible. Yeah, still looking forward to seeing the first trailer for Salem's Lot, which has been pushed back. It's going until next year, unfortunately. The Grey Man has attracted, apparently, plenty of eyeballs, and that's according to uh, Netflix, and their rather uh, unique way of gathering ratings. Uh, <laughs> apparently, Sandman as well has done incredibly well over its <laughs> opening week. So it's no surprise that uh, Netflix have leapt at the chance to keep working with Joe and Anthony Russo. Uh, another project of theirs, The Electric State, has come up for grabs after it's been lingering in limbo for some time over at Universal. They have uh, signed on to this uh, Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things, Chris Pratt, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Brian Cox, Stanley Tukey and Jenny Slate have now joined the cast alongside those other names. Uh, the Electric State apparently adapts a Simon Stahlhaik uh, graphic novel, which I don't know, but regular Russo collaborators, uh, Marcus and McFeely, are on script duty. The story is set in an alternate future where it follows a teenage girl, of course, I'm guessing that's played by Brown, who realizes that a strange but sweet robot who comes to her has actually been sent by her missing brother, she and the robot set out to find a brother in an imaginative world of humans mixing with all manners of robots and doing so uncover a grand conspiracy. No word yet on when it's due to arrive. Cox and Slate will be voicing CG characters. It'll arrive as soon as the Russos have worked out what budget they've got for drone cameras. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Universal Pictures have announced March the 8th, 2024 as a release date for the fourth film in the Kung Fu Panda franchise. Are they still making those? I didn't even realise there was a third film. That's how little I followed this franchise. I was out by two. It follows on from the third film, which was released in 2016, which effectively concluded the planned trilogy about the panda bear named Poe, who was voiced by Jack Black, living in a fantasy version of ancient China. No information about what the plot line's going to be, is out there, or anyone else who'll be returning, but potential cast members who will probably return Include, obviously, Jack Black, Dustin Hoffman, Angelina Jolie, Seth Rogen, Jackie Chan, Lucy Liu, David Cross, and James Hong. Meanwhile, Kevin Costner's historical epic passion project that we spoke about a few weeks ago, Horizon, has now landed Sienna Miller, Sam Worthington, and Jamie Campbell-Bower within the cast. Filming is beginning August the 29th in Utah, and the project is the first of the planned film trilogy, chronicling a multifaceted 15-year span of pre- and post-Civil War expansion and settlement of the American West, which is right up my alley. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Big fan of Bert Cosner's directing work. A little bit of Marvel news that has landed this week is, uh, as you probably know, uh, most of the Marvel characters were sold to other studios, notably The Incredible Hulk was at Universal. Uh, they made 2003's Hulk and they released, and that's why it's problematic, as you don't see it on Disney+, Plus, The Incredible Hulk back in 2008. So um, old Jake Jaws, as he's known to us Marvel Comics fans, has been able to only co-star in, uh, in movies like The Avengers and Thor Ragnarok and the upcoming She-Hulk. But it's looking as though the deal 
with Universal is now coming to an end. And just like it did with Paramount, the initial period of what's known as the uh, uh, control over that 15-year deal that was made with Universal Marvel could look as though it's coming to an end next year. So that could possibly mean that Marvel can make an Incredible Hulk movie. Yep, maybe that will be the long, long rumoured and speculated World War Hulk, or they take the elements of Planet Hulk that they used in Ragnarok and expand upon there. Because the thing is with the Hulk is I can't see what they can do with a film of him that doesn't just feel like they're repeating what they've done before. Mm -hmm. Because even in the comics, it tends to be that he gets intelligent for a while, then loses intelligence, goes on a smashing rampage. I know at the moment in the comics, they're being very creative in the way that they're doing it. But it, it, is, a it is a character that works well as a support. But World War Hulk would be something that I'd definitely be inter interested in. Yeah, yeah. David Leach's Fall Guy, which we spoke about a few weeks ago, which is a modern take on the old 80s TV series, The Fall Guy, that had Lee Majors in, is moving ahead. And shooting is set to begin in Sydney, Australia, later this year. And now it's now landed Emily Blunt, who will co-star opposite Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I, still, I still think this is a joke. I think there's, there's a, an internet... In, I still think there's an internet meme where this is just, <laughs> just a gag. I mean, if it wasn't David Leach who has been attached to it, I would I would be with you on that one. But I can actually see this being completely and utterly up his alley. The story of a, well, a stuntman who goes out catching swindlers, thieves, bikies, con men, uh, fugitives and corrupt officials seems right up his alley, especially after watching Bullet Train. I think that he would like, it would lend the right kind of humour and approach and action focus that you, you want from this kind of material. Uh, he's going to direct from a script by his Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw writer Drew Pierce. Uh, Gosling, Kelly McCormick and Guyman Cassidy will produce the film and it's set to release March the 1st, 2024. That's a great birthday present for me. <laughs> <laughs> Fan favourite Carla Gugino, best known for Watchmen and Sin City. Also uh, House on Haunted Hill and Bly Manor. And she made a fantastic appearance in uh, Stephen King's uh, Gerald's Game. Is to start in Diablo Cody's return to the horror genre, Lisa Frankenstein, which is a unique spin on the classic Mary Shelley iconic tale. Catherine Newton of Freaky, Cole Sprouse are already on board to play the leads and they've now been joined by Gugino and Henry Eikenberry. Lisa Frankenstein is an 80s set horror comedy and follows an unpopular high schooler who accidentally reanimates a handsome Victorian corpse during a lightning storm and starts to rebuild him into the man of her dreams using the broken tanning bed in her garage. <laughs> so, yeah, let's not take this too seriously. It's to be directed by Zelda Williams and penned by Diablo Cody, who uh, penned uh, the much underrated Jennifer's Body. With regards to this film, uh, Lisa Frankenstein, just the name Catherine Newton being involved in it automatically makes me interested. I think that she's a marvellous up-and-comer within that kind of horror genre or the, the comedy horror genre, and she showcased her abilities so well so far. Well and truly on board with this. Let's see what it does. Can it can it be as good a horror comedy based on Frankenstein as Young Frankenstein? No. Probably not. No. I think I think the answer's no. 
But can it be worth it? Worth it? A new take on it? Let's wait and see. Potentially, yes. Paramount Pictures is officially going to move forwards with a third Sonic the Hedgehog movie, um, and they've already penned down December the twentieth, twenty twenty four, for a release date. Sonic Two landed a huge seventy two point one million domestic box office and more than four hundred one million at the worldwide box office. So it was a no brainer that he was going to get a third film. It's still unknown whether Jim Carrey will reprise his role as Robotnik. He said that he's stepping away from making films. We'll see. He had so much fun with the Sonic franchise. It's possible he might coax him out of early retirement. The sequel was one of the few films of the COVID-19 era to open ahead of its predecessor, landing the biggest launch of all time for a video game adaptation. And it was Paramount's biggest three-day opening since 2014. At the same time as announcing that date, Paramount has also revealed, sadly, it's had to push back the Smurfs animated musical from that December 2024 <laughs> oh, date. And a world mourns. That's now going to be on Valentine's Day 2025, because that's a perfect date movie, isn't it? But it does mean that Sonic 3 is going to be opening head-to-head against the third Avatar film. Okay. Well, you know what? Classic, as you know... Um... One of classic distribution models is to open uh, two films back to back in case the queue is too long for one film, that if something's there is decent or it doesn't appeal to to her as opposed to just him, then yep. always release something as a bit of an alternate viewing. And sticking with video games, a live action adaptation of Pac-Man is in the works. <laughs> yeah, read that, forgot about it as soon as I read it. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, this is a game where you, you were basically a yellow circle with a mouth who moves through a maze, eating pellets while being pursued by colourful ghosts as the difficulty increased. I'm not sure how that's going to translate to a film, but apparently it's going to be based on an original idea from Lightbeam Entertainment's Chuck Williams, who was one of the names involved in Sonic the Hedgehog, who's going to produce alongside Justin Baldoni, Manu Gargi, Tim Kwok, and Andrew Kaloff. I don't know. I mean, there has been spin-offs of the original video game, which added story. There was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon series and a Disney XD series. So I think dumbing it down to just a blob going round a maze eating pills is kind of like diminishing the product. It might work, but I just generally don't want to see a live-action Pac-Man. <laughs> Animated, I'd probably be more, more for. Pac-Man in the real world won't quite impress in the same way that Sonic does. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's not. <laughs> It's not for you. Well, that's it for the main news. But of course, sadly, we've had two major losses over the last week. Firstly, let's talk about Anne Hesch. A tragic, tragic week. We watched this unfold over the week. So as was reported, Anne Hesch was involved in a, a, a terrible car accident. And if you've seen any of the footage that sadly appeared online, it was quite horrific. She was rushed to hospital. Uh, it was quite clear that uh, from family and friends who were reporting back to the media that it didn't look like she was going to survive. And that uh, unfortunately proved to be true and passed away at the age of 53. She appeared in such movies as Donnie Brasco, uh, Volcano, Six Days, Seven Nights. But at times she became better known for her, her personal life with family revelations and trauma and a relationship that she had, which was very open with Ellen DeGeneres. She released a memoir in 2003 titled Call Me Crazy and was very open about her struggles with mental health and how she survived by her two sons. And, and uh, we'd not seen an awful lot of her over the last few years. She had that wave where she was in so many films, the aforementioned ones that you said, Volcano, I've got a lot of time for, but yeah. also things like Wag the Dog. She was in I Know What You Did oh, Last Summer. Was, yeah. And let's not forget the Psycho remake that whilst it's unnecessary, you can't fault her turn in it. 
Yeah, I mean, most of the cast were pretty good in that. It wasn't it wasn't anybody's fault. It was uh, it was one of those uh, uh, odd ideas, but yeah. But yeah, recent years have seen a have quite a lucrative TV career over the past decade and a half, including a recurring role on Chicago PD in more recent years. Sad news, even more sad, were the seeing it unfold day by day. Yeah, the car crash was horrific. It took firefighters, sixty five firefighters, over an hour to put out the fire before they could actually get her out of the wreckage. She was conscious when they removed her from the wreckage, but lost consciousness and slipped into a coma pretty much as soon as she got to the hospital. Suffered a severe brain injury, and her condition just worsened and worsened until she sadly passed away. Um, it's a really sad loss. At the age of 53, it's, uh, it's tragic, tragic news. Yeah, very sad. And then, of course, the other sad one, and uh, someone who was, was actually a, a part of, of everybody's lives, if you're of a certain age, then the passing of uh, Olivia Newton-John this week, is, uh, is is has been absolutely terrible because I think for you know as I said for some of us old enough to know Olivia Newton John's work she's been pretty much a part of our lives. Yeah, um, I was taken at, at the age of five to see Greece on the big screen, and Olivia Newton John was an early early crush that stayed with me for most of my life. In fact, pretty much all my life. When she popped up in the Sharknado uh, fifth Sharknado film. I, I was straight away big beaming smile on my face because one of my crushes was in one of my guilty pleasure franchises. What's sad and sad about Olivia Newton-John's passing is that she spent the better part of the last few decades campaigning and, you know, she, she was first diagnosed with breast cancer in the early 90s. She overcame that. She was re-diagnosed almost two decades ago. She overcame that. And then only a few years ago, she was diagnosed for a third time with it. And yet she remained immensely positive about everything in life. She always soldiered on. She was always looking for the best in everything. She lived life to the fullest. And it's a shame that she was taken by breast cancer, which she campaigns to try to raise awareness, to raise money. And I think that it hit me hard, Olivia Newton-John mm. passing, hit me really hard because, you know, my family's got history with cancer. And also I just had a huge crush on her. She was such a positive spirited person singer actress marvelous all-round person age of 73 sadly left this world but will always have all of her music and of course the many times that i rewatch greece to remember her by yeah she was she was born actually and, and not a lot of people know actually know this that she was born in in the uk she was born in cambridge in 1948 a family then moved to melbourne she won a talent competition as a teen she performed in an all girl group and then she just kind of exploded she recorded her first single in england in 1966 and then scored international hits i remember she was always a uh, a constant on, of all things, Cliff Richards' Saturday um, variety show. She was instantly recognisable. She then, of course, appeared in Greece back in 1978 alongside uh, John Travolta, even at the age of 29, where she had very little uh, acting experience. She gave an incredible performance to Sandy, a sweet-natured transfer student from Australia who, who uh, romances John Travolta's Danny in the Southern California high school film that was set in the 1950s. They had, they had great on-screen chemistry. A friend of mine worked with her on the uh, physical uh, music video, which again propelled her to the top of the charts in 1981. She was uh, she was kind of a constant. Yes, yeah, you, you spoke about her, her battles with cancer. And I was trying to think of other movies that she's did, and then suddenly thought she was in Xanadu opposite Xanadu. Gene Kelly. Yeah. And then she reteamed, didn't she, with, with Travolta for Two of a Kind. Yeah. But she'll always be remembered for Greece and, and having that 
iconic look throughout that movie which is still not forgotten today and she was just um i think you i think you said the word she she was a beautiful spirit and and i think that's something i i always believed her to be yep and that's this week's the news yep this is the film file the film podcast for film geeks by film geeks and we're hoping you're having a darn and yet educating hour and a half of film goodness if you've not already done so, become part of the Film File family. All you have to do is head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that mighty subscribe button. And remember to leave a like and become part of our family. There are other ways to become part of our family. You can listen to the Film File weekly on No Barriers Radio, going out at Thursdays from eight till nine. And that's on nobarriersradio.com. But you can also find us on Twitter um, at Filmfile UK. You can find us on other social media channels as well. Just search for Filmfile UK. You'll find us around there. You can find us on YouTube. Search for Filmfile UK where you can get the podcast as YouTube videos and occasionally uploaded video footage of the two of us talking nonsense. You can get in touch with us directly via email. All you have to do is open up whatever email tool you use, pop in podcast at filmfile.uk and open your soul to us preferably film related but feel free to open your soul to us about anything any questions that you've got about films anything that you're trying to track down you can't remember the title of go on challenge us i really want someone to challenge us on this one <laughs> i love a good <laughs> challenge bring it on or if there's any classic films that you feel that we need to cover as a deep dive let us know we're always happy to take suggestions and thoughts and opinions and bring them into the show so that's yeah. podcast at filmfile.uk. Get on board. Buy some merch. We're going there. One day we're going to have merch and you can buy it. Or you can ask us a question. Who was that guy, the third guy on the left, who ended up being a big movie star? In fact, it was Willem Dafoe and the film was The Hunger. See, we knew before you asked the question. This week's deep dive is into the 1997 science fiction horror film directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, written by Phil Eisner, Starring Lawrence Fishbourne, Sam Neill, Catherine Quinnan, and Jolie Richardson. And of course it is the classic Event Horizon. A haunted ship. I'm getting some really strange readings in here. A missing crew. This place is a tomb. DJ, where are you? An infinite evil. This ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who knows what it's brought back with it? Vacate! I want off this ship. You can't leave. She won't let you. Event Horizon. We have been talking about this film for a long time because it is, for Andy and I, a bit of a cult classic. The film is set in 2047, follows the crew of astronauts sent on a rescue mission after a missing spaceship. The Event Horizon spontaneously appears in orbit around Neptune. Searching for the ship for signs of life, they learned that the Event Horizon was a testbed for an experimental engine that created a rift in the space-time continuum. And it actually left our universe entirely, but it allowed a malevolent force, perhaps satanic, to possess it. The film came out in 1997 and was a commercial and critical failure, grossing just 42 million on a 60 million production budget. However, on its release to home video, its initial DVD release sold so well that Paramount contacted British director Paul Anderson to begin working on a restoration. 
of the deleted scenes. Unfortunately, they'd either been lost or destroyed. And in the years since, the film has grown from cult following to one which is now referenced in other popular culture. And a film now that is considered a horror and science fiction classic. And Andy and I both absolutely love this film. I mean, it's no brainer that I love this film, is it? Because, you know, it's Paul W.S. Anderson. And I, I love everything that he did. As far as I'm concerned, this is a director who, who hit the ground running with shopping and then Mortal Kombat. And so it was no shock that when Event Horizon was due for release, that I was first in the queue to get tickets and get myself in to watch that. I absolutely have a, a love of Paul W.S. Anderson that baffles Lee so often. But this is a film that showcases what potential I saw in the director that has made me stick with him ever since. It's such a solid, it, it's a haunted house in space. Yeah, it's a haunted that, house. That's movie. How it was sold. I mean, Eisner's script had been knocking around Hollywood for some time and uh, eventually fell into the lap of uh, Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin. And Eisner pitched it to them as a haunted house story in space, basically The Shining or uh, uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting mm. on a spaceship. Um, I loved it from the offset. From the very first screening with me and my mates, we all came out of it and went, wow, that was fantastic. It appears that we were kind of within a minority. I mean, we knew when we were in the screen, we were in a minority because there was only about five people in there with us. Uh, poor reviews and a very disastrous box office kind of made us wonder whether or not we were supposed to enjoy it. It was one of those films that I was going around raving about, but no one else seemed to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I thought that maybe I'd missed the point or they, I didn't know what was going on. But then again, when have I ever followed the crowd? I've always made my own opinions. But even on that first viewing, it is worth noting that I could see that the film that we were presented with seemed to have been chopped down significantly. It was choppy. like It seemed a bit juddery edited at times. And particularly in the second half, the pacing is a bit of a mess. But it didn't stop the experience being chillingly disturbing, much in the same manner of the early Hellraiser films, which this film shares a lot of tonal aspects with. It just had an atmosphere that drew me in. And the gothic nature of the Event Horizon ship. It's a disturbing, twisted hulk of a ship. All spiky, all spiky door. I, why are the doors so spiky? I don't yeah. know, but it makes it so weird and disturbing to think that that was the design for a ship. And it plays perfectly into it. It's such a visual film. And this is something that Paul Anderson's always been for me. He's a visual director. And in this film, he showcases what you could do with horror that sadly he forgot once he got round to doing the Resident Evil films, he moved away to just be like all like explodey effects and beautiful shots. But in this film, he goes for the dark atmosphere. He goes for the foreboding. He goes for the twisted nature. He goes for sinister presence throughout it. This, for me, is, is Anderson's best film by far. He came off shopping, which showed that he knew how to direct, and he knew that thing that a lot of British directors weren't doing. Maybe Danny Cannon would be in that group at that particular time, but yeah. he had a visual flair. Uh, he was taking the best elements from American filmmakers um, who were using music video as, as their source material, and he brought that into the fold. So he made Chopping, and then did uh, in 95, he did Mortal Kombat, which was a, a commercial success in the US and worldwide, and he was up for grabs. Uh, he got offered uh, the sequel to Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but turned that down. He was also in the running to do uh, the X-Men, way before Brian Singer was involved. 
but he turned all of those down an opportunity to create an R-rated horror film and wanted to shift away from making uh, another PG-13 film. He was heavily involved with his uh, producing partner, Jeremy Bolt, in rewriting the script and making it more ominous uh, and definitely pushing those those elements of, of The Shining in there. The film had a lot of production problems. When Titanic looked as though it wasn't going to make its release date, Paramount were all over trying to fill that, that release date and, and pushed Event Horizons into that uh, release slot. And so the usual standard 10-week editing period to produce the film's first cut, as guaranteed, funny enough, by the Directors Guild of America, due to the short production um, schedule and the rapidly approaching release date, they had to cut it in, in six weeks. So there were there were some unfinished special effects, there was a poor sound mix, uh, and the test screenings, therefore, was poorly received. Complaints about extreme gore, uh, and Paramount told Anderson and Bolt that they had to make changes to it and demanded a shorter running time with less gore. Um, Anderson agreed, but while it was his first cut was too long, Paramount forced him to make one that was instead too short, and the film would benefit by a restoration of around 10 minutes of footage, including some of the deleted scenes. It was an all-over-the-place production schedule, and therefore I think there's there's something in with audiences that they get a sniff, an understanding of when a film is, has been tinkered with, shall we say. Mm, yeah, you, you can sense the meddling that took place with this when watching it. And revisiting it on the 4K restored version this week was an absolute joy. Um, it looks so beautiful. The restoration is fantastic. Some of the early CGI effects, the floating items and liquids in particular, stand out a little bit now. But the set design, the atmosphere, everything more than compensates around it, keeping that chilling malevolence that permeates every scene. I know a lot of people are dismissive about Paul W.S. Anderson. And I've always said that he's a great visual director and that's why I like him. And this film showcases exactly how he can frame things. His framings, his like use of the scenery, his use of like background and one of the best dolly zoom shots since Jaws it showcases that this is a guy who knows his stuff. You cannot dismiss Paul W.S. Anderson as just being a fluff director. He really knows his craft and he utilizes it brilliantly in this and it would have been great if all that additional cut footage hadn't got lost or been destroyed because it would have been interesting to see what his original cut of this was uh, we know like you say that there was a lot of gore in one of the early cuts uh, that was all chopped down the key moments still land with horrific precision and there is still some gore in there i'm of the opinion that some of the gore that got cut out maybe it's better that it was cut out because there's nothing that chills more than what your own mind fills in and particularly apparently the uh, blood orgy um, recorded log entry scene had a lot more footage to it yeah I'd heard but that the really. short snippets that we see are enough to make you try to not understand you don't understand exactly what's going on but your brain pieces together something far more disturbing than what i think any uncut footage could have done and the fast editing kind of benefits that part of the film the mind fills in gaps in terrifying ways this is a, a great example of a film that yes it's a mess of editing but some of the editing actually benefits the chilling nature of it but overall it's the right from the offset it's the dark presence you get the feeling that the event horizon the ship isn't just a location it's an entity it's been changed by its its journey through hell and it's become a possessed presence itself. Yeah. It's not a haunted house 
it's that the house itself is the haunting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, making reference to Robert Wise as the haunting, that's it, it clearly is the house itself that is possessed. And that's why you've got that sort of Bosch sort of look to the to the ship and, and the design elements of that, that, the, that you say the ship is somehow mutated into looking sort of uh, more gothic. Um, there was talk of a director's cut, but as I said earlier, a lot of the footage had gone missing. There is still stuff out there that's on VHS. Uh, as you said, the famous Blood Orgy sequence was uh, a lot longer and a lot more graphic where actual amputees were used and, and pornographic film actors were hired to make the sex and uh, scenes more realistic and graphic. Uh, the film ending was a combination of two unused endings. One didn't have the jump scare at the end when the last two survivors were found by another rescue team and Stark hallucinates that he sees Weir, although there was a similar version of the scene included in the ending where she hears a scream of the event horizon and screams before Cooper wakes her. So there were, there were different versions of this film. It's one of those films that's now entered into um, into the legacy of the lost footage and, and everyone would love to see that lost footage. But as you said, Andy, it's a film that does feel pretty complete. If I didn't know that there was there were missing scenes, it wouldn't matter. Yes, it makes me hungrier to see a completed, more vision, uh, clearer vision of Event Horizon. But it's a film that still stands up. I, I caught it recently when it's on Netflix. It looks superb. It's got a, a, a great sense of design. It's well-paced. It is a proper horror movie. Mm. Uh, it's a shame that it got tinkered with. I still don't think we would have got the version that Paul W. S. Anderson wanted to make because I don't think that version could ever have been released. I, th I think it, I think it still works, and it and it's a, a classic sci-fi film for me. I've got a love for it. Of course, I have. It's the first 4K UHD release that I've ever picked up because I've been waiting for this. When we spoke about it on the news getting a release, I was so excited and I put me pre-ordering. I've got a lot of love for this film. I acknowledge that Paul W.S. Anderson has gone off the rails slightly. I still enjoy the dumb fun that his films churn out, but I will always point anyone who dismisses him as like not being a great director over to this film. And I think it's a film that everyone, now that it's on available on streaming services, Netflix have it right there for you. Guys, get out there, get Event Horizon watched, tick it off your list, because whilst it didn't get well received by critics on its release... It's one that over time people have grown more and more appreciation of. And it's one that retroactively people are starting to go, actually, I went back to this and I liked it more the second time around. Such a great film. There's a proposed TV series yeah, we being based on the film. A couple of years ago. Yeah, to, uh, 2019 it was announced. Uh, it was going to get developed by Paramount TV and Amazon Studios with Adam Wingard set to executive produce. Where that is in the stage of production, it's still somewhere in limbo. But um, Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin, who produced the original film, are involved in it, and it's still potentially going to move forwards. Whether it can do this film justice, I don't know. I think that this film is one of those that night it holds up well. It stands well on its own, and I think a TV series might dilute it a bit too much. I like the unnerving nature. I like the fact that not everything's explained. I like the fact that it's just a twisted disturbing vision of hell basically yeah it is i mean for all its shortcomings and there are shortcomings in this film i think there are issues with it those issues for me don't take away from what is an unsettling sci-fi horror movie uh, that avoids feeling like alien because when you do sci-fi mm -hmm. uh, monster cliches even as brilliantly as alien 
you know, you, 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 nowadays you're going into familiar territory and there's something about this which never feels familiar. Feels a little bit unfulfilled on the promise of, of, of how it starts, mm -hmm. but there's still a great film in this and highly recommended if you've not had a chance to see it. So as Andy said, you can catch this on a 4K release out this week, but you can also find it on Netflix. I do recommend the 4K release. Uh, the extras on board there include commentaries, five documentaries on the making of the film, and also discussions on some of the deleted scenes and unshot footage. Is there any footage on there that we've not seen before? The, um, there's the stuff that was released on the DVD. There's the two extended sequences that had already been released previously, but they've been given a bit of a polish up and they look so much better on uh, this new release. So we've been able to find it on Netflix and been able to find it on the 4K release, there is no excuse why you can't get to see Event Horizon and it gets a double thumbs up from us. Okay, so that's our deep dive for this week. We'll be back with another one next week. What is out right now that may be worth seeing or perhaps maybe worth avoiding in a segment that we should call the reviews because that's what you're getting, reviews. It doesn't happen very often, but Andy and I both get to talk about a film that we've both seen. Uh, and that film is Jordan Peele's, is it a, a UFO mystery? Is it a science fiction? Is it his close encounters? Or is it his M. Night Shyamalan signs? Well, Andy and I will tell you whether it's a nope or a yay. Did you see a UFO in that cloud? Yep. Nope. I ain't never seen yep. nothing like this. No. So, as I said, Nope is the latest film from Jordan Peele, who previously gave us uh, Get Out and Us. Story centers around siblings OJ, played by the fantastic uh, Daniel Kaluuya, and his sister Emerald, uh, Kiki Palmer, who inherit a Californian horse ranch from their industry legend father. So, basically, they're horse trainers for the movie industry. Anyway, one day, they glimpse a mysterious object lingering in the sky above their ranch. The rest of the movie is them attempting to capture this mystery on film, but the two make horrific discoveries about the phenomena's true nature. So there was a lot of good word. Andy and I had both been pretty excited for this one. Reviews calling it one of the best films of the year. People praising that Jordan Peele is the new uh, Spielberg. And then I got to see it. Now, I'm going to be careful. I guess we're both going to be careful and we're not going to give away too much of, of the plots. And as ever, Jordan Peele is in metaphor land. Uh, and I'm guessing his metaphor for this is talking about the rise of things like TMZ uh, in which uh, audiences get to try and understand what they, what they see and they believe. But I'm not sure whether this film lands. And for a film to come away with more questions unanswered than asked in the film, then I'm not always certain that that film has succeeded. There's a lot to like but there's a lot that confused me about it. And I think you pretty much feel the same. Yes. Uh, we had a little discussion off air before we started recording today where we covered some spoilerific stuff. And we're going to avoid the spoilers in this review. We'll go on the, the feelings that the film gave rather than the moments 
that we have problems with. But for the podcast listeners, after the final Sting music plays out at the end, I will include the snippet of our off-air discussion so you can find out what it was that we had problems with because we both had problems with this film and we both seem to be having the same problems. For me, I walked out of this film thinking, oh, he's, he's, he's kind of adapted Jaws, but he's got the pacing wrong. This film, particularly for the first two thirds, suffers with the pacing. Yeah, I can see that. Even though it takes time building the story up, it manages to do so whilst at the same time not letting some of the side characters breathe or grow or focusing a bit too much attention on a side character's storyline that goes nowhere. And aside from oh, nice effects, for the first two thirds of the film, I was kind of just going along with it. Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer kept me on board because their relationship as Otis and Emerald is great. Otis is very quiet, reserved, unassuming, withdrawn, whereas Emerald is fierce, independent, spirited, and very headstrong, and it plays well. The duo throw themselves into their parts marvellously. It's the wide array of support characters that the film is padded out with at that early part of the film that kind of bogs it down, and as a result, the film runs for 130 minutes, which feels a tad excessive, but... It is worth noting that the final act kind of compensates, especially once Michael Wincott enters the fray. I mean, Michael Wincott. We've we, we've always got time for Michael Wincott in a film. Add him to anything, ratings go up. You get an straight away. Thumbs up. And it brings some energy to the last part of the film. And it does pay off quite well in that final act. We can't talk about what pays off because spoilers. But Wincott is a renowned cinematographer who they hire to help capture the footage. And it helps the film pick up the pace at that point, making for an ultimately satisfying conclusion of a film that was deeply unsatisfying. I'm I'm with you every step of the way on this one. I think it was interesting. It wasn't the film that I thought I was going to see. I'd heard this comparisons to it being, to it being Jaws and a UFO movie. So I went in with a certain expectation and cleverly Jordan Peele does this every time. He, he, he doesn't deliver the film that you think that you're going to see. He has these elements, of course, of, of social commentary that runs through all of his films, and, and that makes him a very personal uh, uh, film director. And, and, and certainly, for me, Get Out is still his, his best film. I know Us for you, isn't it? Yeah, Us for me. And he plays with this element of what the film industry is about by, by looking at some of the people who were the lower end of crews, and, and that gave it an, a slightly different insight. And he uses uh, characters who would predominantly be minorities in in certain kinds of, of genre films and brings them to the forefront uh, with a, a cool little turn from Steve Ewan in particular, you remember from Walking Dead. He, he knows how to manipulate uh, perspective of the audience and does that very well. And he knows how to play horror. And we've seen that through all of his all of his movies. But there's that, li- that biting element of satire always sometimes underplays from the tension and the terror. I found that in the last act of, of Get Out, for instance. Mm. I found that in in Us when it becomes clear what Us was supposed to be about and it threw me out of the film. Uh, and and it, there's one part in this, one subplot, which for me, I don't understand why it's in there. You've got this subplot, and again, don't want to give anything away. So we see Steve Yoon's career go south after a, a horrific event when... Uh, uh, a chimp runs amok on a TV set. And it's a it's a complex and detailed subplot, which doesn't really, as I said, pay off. I don't understand why it's in. And I don't know 
if the film should have been about him and not OJ and Emerald or that the film should be just about OJ and Emerald and not him, but it just felt there was just too much going on. And I, I don't see the necessity for that particular subplot uh, and what it's there to do. And especially as the film opens with this subplot, but doesn't become a part of what the last act should have. It's like having the opening scene from Jaws being set in a diner rather than being at sea. You know what I mean? And, and <laughs> it, it doesn't quite, it, it's important to one of the characters, but it, you could take it out of the movie and it wouldn't change the tone of the movie at all. Let's draw on some huge positives. Visually, this film is superb. The yeah. design of the UFO, as it as it the film progresses, just really is creative, and it does something really clever with it. And the sound mix and sound design in particular yeah. is absolutely worth going to see this film for. It unnerves you, it pins you into the seat, it's creepy, it's chilling. And it more than compensates for the failings of the film's story. The sound design and the visuals are worth seeing this film on the big screen with the best sound system alone. I'm not sure that they'd have the same impact on home release when I come round to revisit this. Because this is... Yeah, I will revisit this, Andy. I didn't dislike this film. I just feel that my expectations were at a certain point. Because it didn't deliver on them, I noticed the shortcomings. But it's a film that I want to revisit sometime down the line with a different perspective. Because I'm seeing everyone raving about it. I've seen some people say that this is their favourite of Jordan Peele's films. And this is one thing that's interesting about Jordan Peele is everyone's got their own particular favourite. And it's interesting that he's tapping into multiple different audiences from different tones of his different films. It's a film that I will revisit. It's not a bad film. It is redeemed by that final act. And it needs to be made clear it's redeemed by that final act. If that hadn't have picked up as well as it did, this would have tragically been a two-star film for me but it finishes as a three and a half out of five for me yeah i'm gonna go with that exactly i think it's i think it's ambitious i think it does it does something different with the flying saucer uh, film genre that almost becomes lovecraftian if you can use that term and i think it gives jordan peele a, a particular distinctive voice not always a voice that i like what he does but he's, I think he's always he's always doing something that that blurs the line sometimes between satire and and uh, and horror. And sometimes I wish he would just sit more in the horror side than having the black humor play out. But it's an interesting film, not necessarily the film that I thought I was going to see. But there's, as I said, there's a lot of questions that are unanswered, and therefore it doesn't feel as though it did its job. Yeah. Okay. So that's nope. So it's kind of a kind of a yay, yeah, rather than a, a yes or a no. Yeah. Okay, Andy, what else have you got for us? This is something that's been on Netflix for a couple of months now, and I got round to watching it a few weeks ago, but I do want to bring it to the show. And that's RRR, which is a Telugu film that is absolutely a perfect example. Like I said a few weeks ago, when I was talking about how people ask me, why do you watch Bollywood? This is why I watch Bollywood and Telugu films. It's phenomenal. Fire! Brace yourself for wrong. Yourself. Rodram Ranam Rudiram 
Rage, War, Blood, landed on Netflix a while back, coming from director S.S. Rajamouli with a fanfare. Netflix made a big event of the release, and it's easy to see why, as this is an epic-scale action film, the most expensive Indian movie to date, and it looks and plays marvellously. It takes two figures from history, both Indian revolutionaries who fought against British oppression and occupation. The film plays them fictionally, posing the question, what if these two had actually teamed up? The result is a fun, chaotic and energy-fused three hours that's packed with stylized action, romance, dancing, comedy and bromance. Oh yeah, a lot of bromance. A young girl, Mally, is forcefully abducted from her village by the tyrannical British administrator Scott Buxton and his wife. The tribe's guardian, Comran, is sent to retrieve her, working undercover. He encounters an undercover officer in the Imperial Police Force when the pair work together to save a child after a train derails, and they strike up a strong friendship. But both their secret identities threaten the friendship, and will inevitably bring them to clash on a grand scale. The key pairing at the N.T. Ramareo Jr. and Ram Charan as Comran and Raju is the gel that holds this sometimes preposterous nature of the film together. Both actors bring a solid presence, and when they unite as friends, it's impossible from that point to not care. And knowing that their fates will see them work against each other has you rooting for a reason for them to not betray one another. Of course, around them are a wealth of support cast, such as the ever-great A.J. Devon and Aliyah Bat, whilst Ray Stevenson and Alison Doody chew the scenery and twirl moustaches as the governor and his wife. The film doesn't present the English in a positive light, and why should it? The British were the bad guys in that time period, and they are used as such. The action is beautiful to watch, stunningly choreographed, and whilst also being quite brutal and bloody at times. Indeed, the bloody moments are also present in some of the darker sections of the film, with a particularly brutal torture scene leading to quite a few wincing moments. But there's a lightness to the film. The aforementioned bromance leads to some fun interaction as Raju helps Comran with his love of an English aristocrat named Jenny. And as a result, we get a fabulously entertaining dance-off scene at a British party. RRR is a strong example of why you should never dismiss Bollywood and Telugu films as being bland and generic. Everyone should check out what is sure to be a strong entry in many people's list of the films of the year. What else do you have for us, which I think is a new delivery to Netflix? Yes, Day Shift, which sees Jamie Foxx as a vampire hunter. What are you doing in my room? Hunt vampires. Vampire hunting is a business. Cut next and cash your checks. Well, things have changed since you got your ass kicked out the union. If I don't come up with 10K, my wife and my daughter are going to move to Florida. Hi, Dad. Your legs again. And the union is the only place that could give me that kind of money. Your record is chock full of incidents. But he's a new man. One last chance. This is your final warning. Let's get crazy. Oh, no. Vampires just tried to kill me. Now I just pissed my favorite. Hey, 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 everybody pisses themselves the first time. Really? Yeah. Did yeah. you? No, I, no, no, I didn't. But, but listen, you did. With Chad Stelsky at the, in the producer list, you kind of know to expect bone-crunching action. And having a stuntman and martial artist, J.J. Perry, directing it, pretty much cements that visually the film is going to deliver on thrills. But can this tale of a vampire hunter in L.A. deliver more than just action? Jamie Foxx plays Bud, 
a hunter who works the day shift to take out vampires, collecting their fangs to trade in for money. However, the money he's offered by the pawn shop isn't enough, and he needs some funds urgently to pay for his daughter's tuition. Thus, he's forced to return to the hunter's union that he was previously ejected from due to his unorthodox methods of hunting. He's paired up with an auditor named Seth, played by Dave Franco, who's there to log all his breaches of protocols. But Seth lacks the courage and nerves for street work and could be a hindrance for Bud. Plot-wise, in the background, a new era of vampire is working to unite the factions and destroy the old regime. So someone's been watching the Blade films. However, none of that seems to serve any consequence aside from to give a big menace for Bud to be pitted against later in the film. The plot line is completely inconsequential and the film is simply an excuse for multiple bloody and gruesome scenes of vampire slaying. And boy, does it deliver. The action is wonderfully staged with contortionist vampires, chaotic gunplay, savage mutilations and fierce intensity. It's also quite witty in the approach, especially as we get to meet a variety of additional hunters, each with their own style. Snoop Dogg is Big John Elliot, and Steve Howie and Scott Adkins are the Nazarian brothers, and each of these presences adds some new energy to the proceedings, whilst also growing the lore of the world setting. Day Shift is dumb, disposable fun. It just about avoids outstaying its welcome, and as a slice of comedy action horror, it works a treat. Just don't expect anything new. It made me think of, and I've not seen the, the movie yet, uh, it made me think a little bit of, let's do vampires, but let's do it with Men in Black. It's, I can see that. It's a nice bit of disposable entertainment. So that's what's out this week. What have we got coming up over the next week? So at cinemas this weekend, Orphan First Kill. Nah, I'm not big on Orphan, but it's got an audience. And, um, oh, well, this is, the, this is the sequel that everyone's been clamoring for. Fisherman's Friends, one and all. <laughs> But for people like me and Lee, the 4K remastering of Star Trek The Motion Picture gets a very limited cinema release this weekend. So I might be making my way to watch that. On Now TV and Sky, House of the Dragon starts this coming week. Fans of Game of Thrones. Oh, is it this week? Is it out already? Yes, it's coming out this week. Jackass Forever, something for Lee to miss there. And Journal for Jordan also lands on Now TV and Sky. Over on Amazon. Now, we mentioned this and we didn't get a chance to watch it when it got a very limited cinema release, but Channing Tatum's directorial debut, Dog, lands on Amazon Prime this week. I will be reviewing that, hopefully, on the next show. And as the week starts to roll over and we get close to the next episode, we'll have had a chance to watch the first episode of She-Hulk, which lands on Disney Plus this coming week. Yeah, it was supposed to land Wednesday and they pushed it on to Thursday. So I will be talking about that next week. And that's about it for us for this week. We'll be back again with another film file for your delectation next week. And before we go, and yes, of course, if you're a regular, you know we do this every week where we tell you about our neat thing. Something that uh, we've enjoyed, we've done, we've played, we've eaten, we've been there. It's been part of our lives for the last week. Andy, what is your neat thing well i was going to say one thing but then you said at the head of the show uh, before we started recording what your neat thing was and stepped on my toes so i'm not oh, going to step right. on your toes for once for once i'm going to let you have that pleasure oh, I think so you. instead i'm going to draw on another neat thing and this is a neat thing that this is another gaming one i'm really into me gaming again at the moment and it's another game that i think i've owned on every format that it's ever been released on and i've played it through multiple times and that's Bioshock. I've never played it. I've always wanted to. I don't know why I've never got round to, uh, to to playing it. There's something about the, the, the trilogy of games are 
each of them stand nicely alone as their own thing, but also weave alongside each other beautifully. And there's something about the Bioshock series that the atmosphere that the games give you of this underwater complex, particularly in the first two, it's a sky complex in um, the third, third game. Like I said, I've played them through multiple times. I'm now working through them again on the PS4 enhanced remastered versions via my PS5. And I'm loving it again. I know the story already. I know how it all plays out. I know what the shocking revelations are going to be as the game gets to the end. But I don't care because like a good movie, this is a game that you like to revisit and you like to explore the themes and you like to feel immersed in. The Bioshock series are great first-person games with well-woven, well-crafted and sometimes quite disturbing backstories to them that you go round and you collect recordings of people's personal diaries that tells you what actually happened in this underwater complex when the owner of it basically went a bit mad. Marvellous games. I thoroughly recommend that you dig them down. You can find them regularly in the sales. They're cheap to pick up and well worth any time to dedicate to. So Bioshock, even though I've completed the game about 40 times, I'm trying to complete it again. I'm determined to get all the trophies on it this time around. I've never done all the trophies because you need to play it on maximum level. And I will do it this time because I know this game inside out and it's not going to beat me. So my neat thing, and I've mentioned my love for this uh, before. I've talked about the uh, Audible adaptation. I've talked about the comic book itself. And that is, of course, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, which landed on Netflix last week. And I know I'm not the only one watching it. It's taken a good 30 years for this to be adapted there's been talk of movies there's been talk of tv series there was been talk of movies again and now it's landed in a way that i don't think it could have been done even 10 years ago it's big and it's bold and it's a story of, of gods and demons but it's a story about narrative and the way that we tell stories we've only got 10 episodes but it's almost ludicrous that they've managed to cram so much into those 10 episodes. We now live in an era of, of mega budget fantasy television, you know, as, as Andy's mentioned, House of Dragons lands this week. And I think Sandman fits in proudly into, into that tradition of, of what can now be done on television. It ties in very nicely into the look of, that we've all expected from, from the books and yet does something different with it, as all good adaptations do. It's not slavish to its material. It's, uh, it's added um, elements that we've not seen before and have made very, very bold uh, casting decisions. So I'm only a couple of episodes in, and we're still really in the realm of fantasy, but I know where, where we go with it, as I know what's to, to be expected. The first episode begins in 1916, when Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, or the Sandman, or Lord Morpheus, Dream of the Endless, played by, well, in a, in a, in a typically goth style by Tom Sturridge, who, who plays him like Robert Smith, but more sinewy. Uh, is mistakenly captured by Charles Dance as a sinister magus and loses his 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 powers while he's he's trapped here on Earth uh, and ends up that Dream has to therefore rebuild his his castle and his his world around him. So only a couple of episodes in, and I am impressed that they've captured the essence of Sandman, and it feels exactly like it should and uh, and i think the changes that they've made that don't quite tie into the sort of the dc universe doesn't really matter because i think it is its own thing and when the first season's done hurry up and bring us season two so my neat thing is the sandman 
And that, folks, is us done. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Uh, another deep dive, more news, more filmy goodness. Andy, anything planned over the next week? No, uh, back to work for another five days. Dan Seth, as my run of months is slowly coming to an end. Well, I can see again, so I am looking forward to doing a massive catch-up over the next week, and I think tonight's catch-up might be, in fact, right here. Uh, Stick around for a little bit of bonus stuff if you are listening to the podcast. If you're listening to us on the radio, just head over and subscribe to the podcast, and you can hear all the extra bonusy bits. But in the meantime, where we're going, we don't need eyes to see, except I do. And obviously, we've both seen Nope, so we can both talk about Nope. Mm, I'm intrigued to hear what you've got to say about Nope. Mm, yeah. I think we're on the same page. Yeah. It, did it need to be 130 minutes? No. Nope. Nope. There's, um, a look to, there's more Nopes than Yes in this list for me. Was the severely underdeveloped characters? Yep. Was the Was the pointless additions of characters with backstory developments that went nowhere and meant nothing? Yes. yes. Did the last act save it? Yeah, to a degree. Mm. I think the final act tightened up and like did something interesting. Did we just... need the killer chimp story to start the movie, nope. which ultimately goes nowhere? Nope. Because there's even a hint with that shot of the shoe being upside down. Yeah. For a minute that you think this is all tied in. Yeah, but it, it, it just seems to have no particular relevance. I don't get it. Don't get it that it opens a film. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering if there's huge amount of cuts that are being made somewhere along the way and some relevance of that section has just been completely lost as a result? I'd say not. I'd, I'd be so tempted to say no because he'd reached a stage where he's pretty much in control of his product. Yeah. And I'm betting he didn't make it for a huge amount of money. Or when you're looking at blockbuster money, that is. Yeah. So there's a there's just... I, I couldn't get away why that... You could have taken that entire scene out yeah. and, and it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the story. And I don't get I don't get its inclusion apart from for one line where they weren't. That's why they don't use chimps in movies anymore. Yeah, you know that was. Uh, but it, it what made it more in, more intriguing, more baffling, is that they opened the film with it. Yeah, as though it was had some weight to it and some significance. So therefore, it should have some uh, element to the to the um, to the ending of it. And the fact it wasn't even one of the main characters. No who the story is relating to. It was no. a side character that was offed at the midway point. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I, I didn't get what he was going for with a lot of the film. No, the humour was uh, misplaced for me. I, I love, I, I loved Daniel Kaluuya and Keisha yeah. Palmer. Their she got nerves initially, related, but she... Their, their relationship, because they were both such contrasts. Yeah. And it, play, it played them off quite well against each other. And I loved when Michael Wincott came into it. Yes. Because um, he doesn't love Michael Wincott in anything. I know. Uh, but, yeah, if it wasn't for the final act redeeming it, it would have been like a two out of five film. It managed to get to a three and a half. That yeah, I'll agree with that. Somebody asked me what it was out of ten, and I said seven. Yes, that's three and a half out of five. Yeah. yeah um, and that was based it on... It looks great. And the sound mix, man, the sound mix is marvellous. Mm. There's some creative use of sound in there. There's the screams of the people as they're getting digested. Yeah. The, the fact initial... that it's not a UFO movie, which is yeah. what it sets out as, is quite clever. It's, it's a weird squiddish kind of entity. I didn't understand why it was there. Which Okay, so you don't have to understand why something is alien to be there. Yeah. But why there? And again, you know, the, the, uh, the alien thing 
didn't have to have an arc, yep. you know. But I would like to have had, you know, it's like haunted house stories. There's got to be a reason why you you move into a haunted house and it haunts you. Yeah. And I and that I didn't get. Why is it haunting these people? Why is it a part of these people's lives? What have they done to deserve this? Uh, and I remember I remember an analysis years ago about poltergeist. Yeah. That if people are uh, are being haunted, then they're there to pay a price. They're being haunted by something that's happened in real life, which is the fact that the guy was in those properties. Yeah. He's a salesman for those properties, and so that that was the uh, that was the conclusive evidence as to why he was there. I did initially think when walking out of no, um, has, has Jordan Peele just tried to remake Jaws but with a creature in the sky? You know, and I'd heard that, <laughs> and I'd heard Jaws, and I thought, you know what, for an, and initially I thought for a great, what a great idea for a science fiction film, yeah, to remake Jaws inland with uh, a ufo and i thought well it is very clever he's done something different with um with it not just being a flying saucer yeah um and i thought that was once that that reveal came i thought oh that's clever mm. that's pretty smart um and the alien design was quite interesting yeah but it filmed kind of needed it's one of those films that needed a bit of a coda to yeah. it as well you know when they walk away at the end you know um because you don't know who lived in... Oh, but yeah, okay, so you know the brother lived, but you didn't know if Angel had lived. You were given the impression that he'd lived. Yeah. Or what had happened to the footage that uh, they shot was that, you know, even if it was played over the credits, the, the footage being played out would have given it a reason for everyone to be there. Yeah. It was just somebody... It, was just, it just felt incomplete. And, it, and the same thing that annoyed me about, about us annoyed me in that. And it's that slightly satirical nature to it. Yeah. Which is clever, and no one else is doing it. But there might be a reason no one else is doing it on, on the back end of that. This little chat about Nope is the kind of spoilerific stuff that we can't include in the reviews. So guess what I'm doing this week? I'm cutting, <laughs> I'm cutting that little chunk of discussion that we've just had and tagging it onto the end of the episode. <laughs> yes, good man. <laughs>